And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's the Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of the Rodcast, David Steele. Now we are talking. We are back. Back again with another great episode of the Rodcast. My name is David Steele, and I want to thank, as always, our announcer, the great Larry Babb, always doing the finest work, whether behind his drum kit or showing us who the new Don Pardo is. <laughs> and that's right. I said it, and I stand by it. Welcome, everybody, and thanks so much for tuning in. Once again, uh, we took a little bit of a break from things around here, but I'm happy to say, uh, simply, Ben, because things around the American Hot Rod Foundation offices have been going like gangbusters, and a lot of that has to do with any of you out there who've been enthusiastic enough about our work to sign up as a supporting member of the AHRF. And I know I've said it before, but it means more than you can know that we have troops of folks out there that care just as much as we do about saving hot rod history. It's it's just the best thing. And it is what keeps, you know, keeps us getting up every day and doing our interviews, scanning and preserving our photos and digitizing the old film. And it's a great team effort, and we truly thank all who are making it possible. Uh, you know, yeah, so the day-to-day dealings with uh, fulfilling membership packages um, can, you know, keep us pretty busy. But I'm happy to say we've set aside a little time to get you guys a new Rodcast because I'm super, super happy to say you know, we've heard from a lot of you. It's it's so great. We've seen the comments on our social media feeds asking when the new episode uh, of the broadcast is coming out. It's, it's truly heartwarming uh, to know that this little part of the AHRF machinery is enjoying an enthusiastic following. So, yeah, nothing makes us happier than to know that you guys want to hear from these legends in their own voice. And I think I speak for all hot rod historians when I say how lucky we are that we can still talk to folks like our guest today, Harry Hibbler. Uh, you know, Harry's one of those guys that we've we've all known about our entire lives. We've heard his name. We've read his name. Uh, but, you know, you rarely hear from him. And. I think that comes from a couple of things. It, number one, his, you know, his truly humble attitude and the fact that he's always had his head down, you know, just working, working and working. And that work includes his start in 1955 as a tech inspector at his beloved San Fernando drag strip, a place he would find himself managing a mere five years later while still in his 20s. But, um, you know, for that entire decade, 
of the 1960s. He he managed San Fernando, but, you know, he'd often find ways of taking something down the track, always had his helmet and his fire suit with him. And, you know, he never relaxed into just being an observer. Um, and that grew over time. And in fact, in 1970 at the Bakersfield March meet, he fought through an enormous field of top fuelers only to find himself paired with one of his best friends, the late Tony Nancy. And although Nancy won, thanks to a red light from Hibbler, uh, it showed just how serious a racer, for those who may not have known, just how serious a racer Hibbler was and had always been. And, uh, you know, I, and I say that because, re, you know, remember my comment about Harry and his work ethic. Uh, you know, consider that throughout the decade of the 60s, he was managing San Fernando full time, then took a position with Peterson Publishing that started in sales and then ended with Harry being in, in the publisher's chair of the industry's largest magazine, all while keeping his general contractor's license and rebuilding and remodeling familiar places of business like the headquarters of Ed Pink Racing Engines, uh, his pal Tony Nancy's upholstery shop, even the offices of Drag News. So we're not sure when Harry ever slept, <laughs> but we sure are grateful that he's just as energetic as ever and was willing to sit down with us and share his amazing story. So without further ado, here we go. Sit back, buckle up, and hang on as we bring you our talk with the legendary Harry Hand Grenade Hibbler. Well, Harry, thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Really appreciate it. Let's have you state your name and where and when you were born. Douglas Harry Hibbler, born in Albuquerque, New Mexico in 1935, February the 28th. And what was... What was your childhood like there? What what did what were your surroundings like? What was your family like? It was just, you know, it was very typical of that time. Uh, we lived, uh, we walked to school, which was about a three-mile walk. Uh, I started school in the, I was actually four years old when I started in the first grade. I didn't go to kindergarten, you know, I skipped all of that. Uh, Albuquerque at that time, that was just before, you know, uh, before World War II broke out. So you had the Air Force Base was there, and almost all of the young guys that I was in school with in the first and second grade there, they were, their parents were all in the Air Force. And so, you know, it, it was kind of just a, it was so different than what it is today, there's no way to describe it. Mm. You know, Sunday afternoon, you, lay, you you sat around, I think our my sister and I, uh, amused ourselves by pouring water down tarantula holes and putting a big jug over it with a bumblebee in it and watching them fight each other. That was Sunday afternoon in, in Albuquerque. Hmm. So, and then we moved to uh, a mountain there onto a ranch, and I, that's where I spent the first five or six years after that of my life. And uh, two things I learned there is I didn't like cows because you had to milk them. I didn't like horses because you had to ride them all day to chase the cows. And when I grew up and somebody would say, do you want to go horseback riding? No, I didn't want to. 
Do you want to show? You want me to show you how to milk a cow? I know how to do it. I don't want to do it. <laughs> so that was my childhood. Yeah. I was given so much advantage, though, by a mother and a father that I don't care what question I ask. They stopped whatever was being done at the time and explained. I don't care what the question was, and I asked some really doozies. But they would stop and explain it in detail. This is what happens. This is how it happened, and this is why it happened. So that started my whole life out learning and uh, coming to grips with feeding your imagination. Tell yeah. me about your folks. What did they do? What did your dad do? They were farmers. Uh, my mother, you know, worked. Uh, my dad, it was dry farming and ranching. We had uh, a lot of cows. We had 3,000 acres that, uh, you know, 3,000 acres in Mountaineer, New Mexico would produce enough feed to feed about 100 cows. Uh, but everything was centered around that farm, and we didn't have running water, we didn't have electricity, we didn't have any of these things. So we were very dependent on ourselves, and if dad, if something broke, my dad fixed it. I don't care. He may not have known how to fix it, but he did. And he was just, you know, it was just, if you didn't take care of yourself there, nobody would take care of you because you didn't have a telephone, you didn't have any way to get in touch. I think our closest neighborhood was like three or four miles away. Hmm. So it was just, you were on your own. And yeah. you, 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 I grew up very independent. How's that? Yeah, it sure sounds that way. And I'm still that way. Would you say that an interest in things mechanical started for you when you were a kid because of the farming and ranching? Well, yeah, because there again, like I said, if something broke or something, if we needed a piece of equipment to work uh, the farm or the, with the cows and stuff, my dad made it. Uh, you know, he didn't, you, we didn't have any money. Uh, my first experience with, I guess, what we would call today hot rodding, my dad bought a school bus chassis right after the war in 1946 uh, and brought it home and went and bought an old Ford pickup cab. Now, you got to remember, this was doing with a hacksaw and a pair of shears. He cut this thing in half, lengthened it, widened it out, fitted it on the uh, chassis of the school bus, and then made metal pieces and screwed them together, put literally put a roofing tar on it to keep it from leaking. That was my first experience with building something that wasn't a stock car, but we didn't have other cars because it, you couldn't afford them. Mm -hmm. He had an old 35 Ford that uh, it, the engine blew in it, so he bought a Jeep motor, war, war surplus Jeep motor, and stuck it in instead of the flathead. So wow. there again, you know, watching him do this. Now, I was only six, seven years old, but I watched how this was done. He didn't have a welder or torches or any of that. You made this with a forge and a hammer and whatever else you needed. You couldn't go to the store and buy anything. And he just built it all right there in his little workshop. And I watched him and helped him when I could. Mm -hmm. So I guess that also helped me as I grew up and started doing things differently. 
you know, and got into the whole world of hot rodding and stuff. It just, it was not something that you did guessing at it. You just, hey, it broke, fix it. If you're in the middle of the desert, you didn't get out and pick up a phone and call somebody because you didn't have a phone and you figured out how to get it out or you're going to have to walk a long ways. And I never liked walking that much. So I would figure out a way to make the car run far enough to get me to some place that I could do some more work to it. Yeah. And you were probably driving at a very early age. Uh, I think I started driving when I was probably nine or 10 years old. Because there again, we we had to have the tractor to follow along in harvest and stuff like that. You couldn't afford it. We, we were, like I said, we were dirt farmers. So we couldn't afford to go hire a bunch of people. So, you know, I learned to drive the tractor at that age. And my sister was three years older than me. She was the same way. She learned to drive too. So everybody grew up very... Uh, dependent on each other, but self-dependent. Mm-hmm. And it was just the four of you? Just the four of us. Well, yeah, it sounds to me like this rural upbringing had a profound effect on shaping you. Kind well, of made, made you yeah, you know, you, uh, you learn to do everything yourself because there was nobody there to do it for you. And you learn to be very independent, which I never outgrew. Uh to the point where probably I got in people's faces when I shouldn't, but then again, um, it was too bad. I, uh, we left uh, New Mexico when I was 11 years old. My mother died at Christmas Eve, and uh, we, uh, right after we buried her, we moved to Oregon. I spent my high school years, I went directly into the 10th, uh, uh, well, the ninth grade in high school when I was 11 years old. And I got out of high school, I graduated, I was just 16. I had, uh, I had an offer from the FBI to come back to Washington, D.C. Uh, in a formal offer in a letter to put me through college and come out as an attorney. I had to dedicate 10 years to the FBI. They would put me through school, pay the whole thing, and uh, I would be an attorney get my bar exam and all of that. And at the end of 10 years, I could quit or go do whatever I wanted to. My dad would not sign the papers for me to go to Washington, D.C. at 16 years old all by myself. So I bought a bus ticket on a trailways bus and came to California instead and been here pretty much ever since. You came here on your own at 16? In, in 1951. And I've been here pretty much, like I said, ever since. And uh, I landed in Southern California at the most opportune time in the world because that's when everybody was playing with cars, having fun with cars. I got to know so many people and so many ways uh, to play with cars, have fun, and it just it just melded together. What happened when you got here? When you were, did you have any kind of a plan? Did you know anyone here? Did you... I had a, about 250 bucks in my pocket, and I started looking. I had an aunt and an uncle that lived here. They let me uh, borrow. <laughs> they rented me a room for a little while. I moved in there. Uh, were they relation to your father or were, mother's side? Were, it was my dad's sister and her husband. Uh, 
after I'd been here about two weeks, I landed a job as a termite exterminator. And I think the biggest reason I got it, because at that time I was a lot thinner than I am now, and I could crawl under about any house in the valley. So I became the expert on crawling under houses and getting rid of termites. But, you know, I bought a car, a little 41 Ford coupe, and the next thing I knew, uh, I was playing with cars, and I had no clue what I was doing, but uh, I upholstered that car myself uh, and uh, did most of the work. My first engine that I built for it lasted exactly 1,400 miles. and Flathead V8? Put, it was a small, a little flathead V8, and at 1,400 miles, uh, it put all the rods on the ground because I didn't own a torque wrench and didn't know what to do about it. But that was my first learning curve there. And that's yeah. how I got started in this whole business. Hmm. And, and were you, you say you were playing with cars, were you going to the drags? Were you going to the dry lakes? Well, were you actually, checking out any of that uh, stuff? You know, that was, no, we were street racing. You know, we'd go to Bob's Drive-In over on Van Nuys Boulevard and that was when you'd pull the choke out so it'd have a wild idol and everybody thought you had a big cam. Uh, if you were lucky, you could find somebody that had a car that was slower than yours and you would race a couple of blocks and uh, make a few bucks. Uh, or you ran from the drive-in. Uh, there was a little drive-in restaurant in San Fernando, the city of San Fernando, and you could make it over the grapevine and back and whoever won that would usually pick up 10 bucks. And I made, uh, I made enough money to buy a few parts that way. So, you know, uh, that was actually before there were any real drag, race, uh, drag strips that were actually going. Uh, C.J. Hart was starting up San, uh, Santa Ana. Uh, Saugus was going, but you know we didn't know that much about the organized, and I call it organized at that time. It was pretty loose, but uh, you had Saugus, then all of a sudden you got uh, there were nine or ten drag strips within an hour and a half, two hours drive of the valley here. Uh, by the time I was eighteen. Mm. And you know, then everybody you, you belonged to a club. I belonged to the Ghost Riders. Uh, car club, we had a coupe uh, there again. I chopped the coupe, made an altered uh, with a big flat head in it, chopped the top with a skill saw, welded it back together. <clears throat> it wasn't pretty, but it ran good. Uh, and that was, that was how all this whole hot rod thing started. Mm -hmm. And you got to know a lot of the manufacturers because those were the guys, they were working in their garages. They didn't own their uh, businesses as businesses so much as they were building parts for themselves and then a buddy wanted some of one of the parts next thing you know they're making parts for everybody else but at that time you got to know a lot of these people as friends more than anything else just because you would go and ask them a question uh, one of the first people that I met I met a gentleman a kid my age Charles Bolas his dad was uh, Charles Bolas Sr., uh, who worked uh, with uh, Ryan Aircraft and was actually the guy that taught uh, um, Lindbergh.
to fly the Spirit of St. Louis because that was not an airplane. It was a gas tank with a wing. And if the motor quit on it, they had to glide it. And Lindbergh had never done gliding. The old man Bolas had done gliding. So he taught him how to fly Spirit of St. Louis. I got to know the old man, and uh, he taught me how to actually how to tear a, the transmission out of my Ford and replace the cluster gear in it in about 30 minutes because I broke a lot of those trying to shift with no clutch. Mm. Uh, that was just, you met people like that. Um, Lyle Dickey, who was a, a, a sprint car and midget racer, I met him. He started, he's the first one that told me what went wrong with the flathead motor that I built because... You know, it's like, well, did you torque it? What do you mean, did I torque it? Well, that's with a wrench that, no, I don't have one of those. How does that work? That's how we grew up and learned all of this. Um, I love hearing about the, the different guys that kind of gave you bits of information. And who are some of the, are there other guys that were kind of mentors or friends of yours that had kind uh, of was, knew the... Uh, um, oh, shoot. Uh, Tom Beatty, who ran a flathead uh, uh, in a, at, the, at the Dry Lakes. And again, see, there was a lot of people in the Valley that were Dry Lakes guys that didn't go to the drag race. But uh, Beatty and, and uh, Winfield, uh, uh, the old man Wyand, uh, Phil Wyand, I met those people because I'd go by and, hey, my car didn't do this or it did that. What's wrong with it? I went to SoCal Speed Shop, which was Alex Exidius, was one of the first speed shops in the Valley. And uh, this was when it was over in Burbank. On a, I'll never forget, it's on the corner. I can't give you the address, but it was on the corner there. And, uh, you know, that was a big deal. This, was a, this place sold speed equipment. None of it fit because... It just didn't. That's why you had a drill motor and a do more and a bunch of stones. Just you had to make the bolt holes get bigger and longer and mm. everything fit that way. When you went to his shop, was it on Olive or, Vic or Victory? I, do you remember? I think it was Victory. It was the very original one. Mm. And it was, you know, to me, walking in there, I think I was 17 years old or like 17 or 18, but it was probably 17 when I walked in that. And looking around, uh, I mean, this was like a dream that had all of a sudden just popped up out of nowhere to see all of this stuff that I didn't even know existed. Yeah, like a toy store. Oh, for, more than a toy store. For a hot rod kid. This, this was a place you could fall in love with. Yeah. And, and if you got lucky, you could marry it. <laughs> but uh, that was, again, I met, uh, that was in, in 1955, I met uh, Frank Hussar, who owned, uh, built race car chassis out in, in uh, Tarzana. And he was the guy that was instrumental in putting uh, the old San Fernando drag strip together. Uh, he didn't want to run it or anything. He just wanted to get a place to get kids off of the street. I met him, and, you know, we'd uh, several of us had gone to Saugus. We'd gone to Santa Ana. We'd gone down as far as uh, Paradise Mesa to those tracks. But 
this is all of a sudden a, a, a racetrack that was built dedicated just drag racing. It had nothing to do with anything else. And Frank said, why don't you come out and be a tech guy? Well, you know, when you think about it, looking back, me as a tech guy at that age, at that track, I knew absolutely nothing about what I was looking for, but I was an authority on it all of a sudden. Hmm. So I became the expert. And I learned real quick, you know, and I watched several cars break, blow up, different things like that. And why did this happen? Why did that happen? And part of my upbringing went back to that. Well, why did that clutch come out of there? It should have had a scatter shield. You know, it's uh, why did it go into the dirt and, and mess itself up? Uh, that was how we were learning was just by doing it, experiencing it. And so that was, again, that was part of the education process. And when I finally took over running San Fernando, it was there again. I had learned so much that it was easy to start helping other guys that were learning. And, you know, it was, it was a, and, and this is going to sound a little conceited, but I had actually developed enough of a insight into watching guys get in and out of different cars as drivers. And I could almost tell you the ones that shouldn't be in the car. And so those guys got watched a lot closer than the guys that I was comfortable with. Mm -hmm. uh, that was just part of growing up and doing this. Uh, I was still, I, by that time I was in, I would had become a framer, carpenter and all of that. And I moved from termite extermination into carpentry and then set up my own contracting firm. And so, you know, by that time, I was driving a few cars occasionally. I was running my construction company, running the racetrack every Sunday, and I stayed pretty busy uh, and, and enjoyed every minute of it, I must say. But uh, again, the door, the, the racetrack and that opened the door so that in 1969, when I went to work for Peterson Publishing, uh, I knew Again, I knew most of the manufacturers. I could call them at home. So I knew who to hit up for advertising, how to get to them. If I couldn't get through their office phone, I'd call them at home and bug them for an ad. So the, I guess the bottom line here is, is that all of this led up from coming to California and just getting involved totally with what was happening. That shaped my life into what it was uh, and what it has been and gave me so many opportunities that I can't tell you how thankful I am I did not become an attorney for the FBI because I would have missed a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I love that you came back around to that because I that was in the back of my mind what you've thought about that opportunity, that missed opportunity over your lifetime. But I, I think that was the best thing. And, and I'm fairly religious, and, and I feel like uh, God's a lot smarter than me. And he figured out that I would be a whole lot more fun, or have a whole lot more fun in Southern California playing than I would be in an attorney out of Washington, D.C. Mm. Uh, and it, you know, uh, the people that I have met over the years, and, and you know, 
let's go back when I was working for Peterson Publishing, when I was the publisher of Carcraft and then Hot Rod, I might have a breakfast with some guy at a local Denny's. I might have lunch at Ford Motor Company with Edsel Ford and have dinner that night with some guy that I'd never met before that had some widget that he wanted to talk about in the magazine. But it, the magazines themselves shaped my life a lot too because with the, as the publisher of Hot Rod and Carcraft, I could pick up the phone and call uh, Bob Stemple when he was chairman of GM. Say, Bob, I want to come in and talk to you about this. Or I could call, uh, you know, actually I, I got to know Henry Ford that way. And I could say, hey, I want to come in and talk about that in the magazine. And the next thing I know, I've got an appointment. And then we went from there and actually didn't walk away from it uh, once it was there. I got to be friends with those people. So I, they kept telling me, hey, here's what's coming down the pike. Here's what we're doing now. Uh, and here's what we're going to be doing. And, you know, you, you met so many people. But on the other side of that, I was playing with the race car. Uh, I started with a midget. Uh, in 19, I had a 48 midget. It wasn't a Curtis, and it had a V860 in it because I couldn't afford a Curtis and I couldn't afford an Offy. I always wanted one. Now I've got one. But uh, I always wanted an Offy midget so bad, but drag racing you could afford. So you went into drag racing. And there again, how many people have I met through drag racing over the years that not only have they become friends, but they've mentored me and helped me a lot, made my life a whole lot of fun and a lot more pleasant to be involved with the world. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it just, it's hard to describe the period, the time period when I got started in it compared to today and what young people are being exposed to today. They, they will never have the experiences that we did. Yeah, yeah. Well, something I'm interested in, you know, speaking of how you, something from thin air can just take place and be built and developed, I'm interested to know how San Fernando Drag Strip even came about, because that seems like a challenge. Well, Fritz Even Byrne, as rural as that would have been, but... The that people time. that owned uh, the, that owned the land there, Fritz Burns and Bill Hannon, uh, they were they were very interested in uh, getting young people off of the street. They developed Panorama City and Pacoima. They developed the Marina del Rey and a lot of places like that. And they didn't want a bunch of young kids street racing in their development uh -huh. now so you know when frank hazar started talking about building a racetrack there to get kids off of the street that whole thing just came together and uh after uh frank got the thing up and they actually opened it and they got it running he lasted there i think he only worked there as a manager for uh, a couple of months because he he had his shop going building race cars and didn't want to do that anyway. And they put a gentleman called Daryl Morgan, who is a uh, sergeant on LAPD and a juvenile judge. They put him out there and he, as the manager, and he started uh, building a, um, a spectator group that 
you know, uh, if the LAPD or San Fernando PD, or one of them, if they had a group of kids that they were having trouble with and they wanted to show them a little different lifestyle, bring them out, bring them in. There's no charge. Uh, we, uh, they did a, uh, every month for one, one weekend out of every month, they had a charity day. It could be the Women's Guild. It could be the Holy Cross Hospital uh, nurses. Whatever it was, they got 3,000 tickets to San Fernando Drag Strip to sell. They got half of the money that came in, and the other half went to the track. Well, what that did was it sold 3,000 tickets regardless. And it brought people in that had never been around a racetrack, didn't know anything about it, didn't even want to be bothered with it. Some of those people converted to become... Uh, enthusiasts. Mm. So they played this pretty strong. Uh, they gave me a pretty f open hand there, and we didn't pay a lot of money like some of the other tracks, but a lot of the drivers that have gone on to become well-known actually learned to drive at San Fernando because it was a day track. It wasn't under the microscope with a whole bunch of spectators. Uh, it was easy to get there. You could run. And uh, the last few years that the track was open, we were under a curfew that we had. We could run big cars and open headers from 12.30 to 3.30. So it was, you know, if they showed up, they could get there, leave home at 11 o'clock, get there, run their car, and be home for dinner. We were done by 3.30. The other thing that was neat was you had guys coming in from uh, Bakersfield and Fresno and up north with their race cars. They could go to Long Beach or Lyons or, one, you know, to Lyons or to Orange County or one of those on a Saturday night and uh, swing by San Fernando on Sunday afternoon, make a run there and be home in time to go to work the next day. So we picked up a lot of people coming by with their race cars that way. Um, it was also, we had a hands-off uh, policy for, I call them celebrities. The Beach Boys, uh, they all came out, they raced cars there on Sundays. Uh, uh, Pancho Gonzalez, the tennis player, he used to race there almost every Sunday. All of these people, and the, the deal was, Nobody goes and asks for autographs. We had nicknames for all of them. And that way, they, if you went and approached them, I'd toss them out because I didn't want them to be bothered with uh, autograph chasers. And were those guys running mainly street cars? Street cars, you know, I mean, uh, Poncho had a CAD-powered uh, T-Bird. Uh, Dennis uh, Wilson had a Porsche. Uh, you know, they all had just their little cars that they played with, but they all, over the years, so many of them wound up coming out to the pond, and it was called the pond because at one point, one of the gentlemen, uh, Dick Harriman, was asked, well, why do you run San Fernando uh, every day, every Sunday, instead of the other tracks? And he said, I'd rather be a big fish in a little pond. And uh, it stuck. And so if I refer to the pond, that was San Fernando. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that a lot of those guys, what was nice about having some of these guys coming out with their cars, they told their friends about it. And uh, there was actually a, uh, 
a scene in a couple of the Beverly Hills Beverly Hill Billies that were shot at San Fernando at the racetrack. And so, you know, there were things that happened there that it gave us an opportunity to expand uh, the spectator side of it. So that was kind of how it grew. Uh, it wasn't that we didn't get good cars either. We had some pretty fantastic cars there, and we had a lot of records set there. Uh, and probably the busiest Sunday I ever had is we had bad weather in Southern California two weekends in a row that it rained and blew everybody. Every other track was closed down for two straight weeks. And a Sunday morning, San Fernando, the sun was out, it was bright, not a cloud in the sky. I had 54 top fuel cars show up for an eight-car show and three hours to run them. And we did it. Oh, my God. Plus, we still had our other classes that were in it. So we, we, the spectators for a buck and a half to get in saw some pretty serious racing in a short time. I bet you... I bet you made some drag racing fans that day if they had oh, if they we, hadn't already been including myself. <laughs> I was so in, I was you know and, and I say myself because if you I I would have two cars going through the lights, two more sitting on the starting line ready to send off and two more pushing down to start and for the the racers themselves worked so hard that day to make sure that this all went smooth. Mm. If somebody broke something and, and the track had to be cleaned, it wasn't just me or one or two of the track guys out there. Every racer out there pretty much, if I had enough brooms, would have been out sweeping. Mm. It, it just, the racer, it was a race racer's track. Mm -hmm. And they enjoyed it there. And it was like, we never charged them to get in. It wasn't, and I'll take one of my shots at National Hot Rod Association that we didn't charge them to get in to put on the show. They were the show. You don't charge an actor to get in and put on a movie, so you get he gets paid. And we couldn't afford a lot of money at San Fernando, but we didn't charge them either. Hmm. So that was kind of how all of this came down and, and how it worked. Uh, and because of my experience there, and then as my construction side of it, I was I did work for a lot of uh, Dick Day, who was a senior vice president at Peterson, and I did some work at Peterson. And they wanted me to come to work for Peterson because of the people I knew. Well, Dick Day was a senior vice president there, and his wife, Joni. Uh, this lady, every time I saw her, and, and he had a lot of damage at his house from some of the flooding and stuff, and I was doing a lot of reconstruction over there. And every time I saw her, you got to go to Peterson, you got to go to work for Peterson. And finally I did it just literally to shut her up. And the next thing I knew, I was one of them. And uh, that led to uh, 30 years of unbelievable things happening. Uh, from some of the people I met, the acquaintances, uh, putting stories together uh, with my editors and, and trying to build uh, different uh, vehicles. Dick Day, one of the biggest things he always said was Hot Rod Magazine can start a new trend, and it could. And he said every three years, Hot Rod Magazine has to start a new trend. So every three years when I was publisher, we came out, dare to be different with 
when we uh, had Cadzilla. Uh, we had it built by uh, Boyd Coddington. Uh, at that time, most of the readers and most of the enthusiasts were buying either Forge or must, you know, Forge or Chevys. You had some Chrysler people in that, but it was mostly uh, the big three manufacturers, and nobody was going to build anything that didn't resemble a Mustang or a Camaro or something like that. Uh, Larry Erickson, who designed Cadzilla, uh, came into my office, we were talking, and he said, you know, I'd like to see this built. We called Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. We called Billy and said, Billy, they want to build this car. Do you want to you want to pay for it? And we called Boyd Coddington, gave him a deadline. That car, from the time they, we sat in my office until we it hit the street and, and finished, and, and on the cover of Hot Rod, it took six months to build it. There was not a drop of lead or putty in that car. It was all hammer welded, and Boyd built that car, fantastic car, and it became actually the most widely recognized car worldwide for several years. Mm -hmm. But I mentioned this because then all of a sudden, guys in the sport started building Studebakers and Ramblers and stuff that would never have been built before. And so Dare to be Different came about. Uh, when I first got involved, uh, Vans, Econoline Vans, Detroit had a lot of benefit come out of Hot Rod, Carcraft, and the various magazines like that. Mm. And I was lucky enough to be in those magazines as a publisher at the time when they were at their top. Uh, when I took over Hot Rod Magazine the first time as a publisher, I had uh, we were selling 700,000 copies a month, actual sold. Within six months, we sold our first million. We had our first million copy months. I moved into corporate, which I didn't want, for a year, and the circulation went back to 750,000. I took it back over and had it back up to a million within four months. So... Not that I'm smart, but I listened to the guys, Dick Day and Bob Peterson, who founded the magazine. I listened to what they had to say, and I would go in and sit down with them on a regular basis and say, what do you think we should be doing here? And sometimes I listened and sometimes I didn't. Hmm. We did the first swimsuit issue after Sports Illustrated had been doing swimsuits for how many years, and I was flat told that uh, when that issue comes out, if it doesn't do a whole lot of sales, you're fired. And uh, it was the best-selling uh, copy we had had in three years on the newsstand. So needless to say, I didn't get fired. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, every other magazine had to have a swimsuit issue every year. But again, because of Bob Peterson and his wife Margie, when we introduced the swimsuit issue, we didn't do it as just girls in bikinis. I knew enough of the people in the music business to, we would, we took songs, you know, Little Deuce Coop. We had a Deuce Coop with a girl in a baby uh, bikini. And the, the verse uh, song, the song's verse was printed as part of the photo in the magazine. So we tied everything, you know, uh, uh, Go Granny Go, that was 
uh, you know, the little lady from Pasadena. There again, everything was tied around a popular song that brought this in. It wasn't just, hey, here's a girl in a bikini showing off skin. And we burned a few uh, subscriptions up that people didn't like it, but it still outsold anything we'd ever sold up to that time. Mm -hmm. So that was how this whole thing evolved over the years. And just so we get it on record, what years were you at Hot Rod Magazine? You know what? I'd have to call you and tell you that. I know. I started in 1969, and I walked out of there in 1996. And I had one year uh, that I, in 1974, I went back into construction, didn't like it. Peterson came back and said, we want you back, and I did it. Sometimes I'll be asked, what years were you publisher of Carcraft? What years Hot Rod? And then we had events seen in some other magazines that I was publisher of. And those dates, I just absolutely, I, I have them written down. I don't try to even remember some of that stuff. Uh, some of the other things that we were very uh, big at, uh, or what I believed in at Hot Rod, uh, was teaching young people to get an education. And we did stories where we compared, uh, we actually had Kenny Bernstein on the aircraft carrier deck with his car fired up really fat, pulling high flames at dark. And we had an F-18 sitting next to it under full afterburner going off when we shot the photo, made a poster out of that, which became actually the biggest, the, the largest circulated poster in, in the U.S. Navy history. Hmm. And I remember that. Sean. In the story, right. that was one of the things was, you know, you can do this or you can do that, but if you don't get an education, there's no way you're going to get to fly one of these planes. We did a story of where we compared uh, Garlitz, which was the record holder in top fuel at the time, against an F-18 off of a catapult on a carrier in the elapsed time. But we went through and showed the, the pilot for the F-18, no max face mask, no max fire, uh, uh, well, it was a G-suit, but it was all no max. Uh, a lot of the same safety precautions, the helmet, all of that were the same things that were being used on the, the top fuel cars and the funny cars and stuff. And my, I was selfish there. I did this for one big reason, because I got to ride backseat in the F-18 off of the carrier. And that I, I'll fly in anything if it's got, even if it doesn't have wings, if it'll get in the air, I'll fly in it. I love flying. Mm. And so we compared that, and at the end of the story, that was one of the things that I had them write in there. You can either learn to fly this plane and make a living doing that and a career out of it. You can get into drag racing, but if you don't get an education, you can't do either one of them. I got literally thousands of letters from uh, parents thanking me for getting their kids to get started doing that. Sure. That wasn't why I did it. I did it to try to get young people to get an education and, and learn what, what it took to get by in this world. And, and some of the experiences, because of this education thing, were kind of mind-boggling to me. Uh, I can't remember um, uh, Admiral McKinney, uh, who was head of the entire U.S. Navy, 
he reported not to the Secretary of State, he reported to the President of the United States because of his history and the way he had worked up. And I had a meeting with him to talk about doing another story on submarines. And I wanted his uh, blessing on the story and what it was going to take to let a couple of us go out on a submarine ride and drive it and do all of those things so we could write about it and compare it to a sub-tender. And then we were going to do, a st which we did, a story about uh, racing with the truck, the semi-truck that goes to the races with them, particularly NASCAR. you got a machine shop in this truck that they can repair the bloody car when it crashes. A submarine can be out, a subtender can repair everything but the nuclear uh, part of the submarine. So I, I was told by the, his uh, McKinney's aide, you got this many minutes and you're out. And I opened the door and I expect this guy, you know, boy, this guy's going to be the Wizard of Oz and he's going to be sitting there with a club. I got about halfway from the door to his desk and he comes running around, literally almost jogging around, throws his arm around me. I've been a hot rod reader since I was 18 years old. Oh, wow. Well, we were there for like 50 minutes instead of the 10 minutes. He blessed everything I did. And then from a selfish standpoint, he, uh, he gave permission. I got to fly backseat with the Blue Angels every year, twice a year out of El Centro. So that was one of the perks that went with the job that very few people in the world will ever get to do, and I was blessed with it. So drag racing and hot rodding and all of this sport is what handed me that experience. Mm -hmm. I, I guess that's what I, I keep going back to say. I was in, in this whole thing in a period when the, the blessings that came with it were far greater than anything else that you got out of it. Hmm. And I, I saw so many people that uh, did not, I, to me, they didn't have a life. You know, they played golf. Uh, and I'm not an anti-golfer, but to me, I'd rather sit in the backseat of an F-18 than I would drive a golf ball around a, a lawn. Well, yeah. But, <laughs> you know, and and... A lot of this also came with being able to jump in car. I, again, from a selfish standpoint at San Fernando, some of the owners would come to me and they'd say, you know, we're having trouble with the car, and the driver thinks it's this. Well, I wasn't an expert, but I'd hop in the car and make a run just to give them my opinion. Whether it helped or not, I don't really know, but I had the fun of driving it. So, you know, and I wasn't supposed to, so I couldn't tell anybody who was doing it. Uh, and most of the time I wore their helmet uh, so that it didn't look like it was me. When I drove the U.S. turbine, uh, I wore uh, Hutchison's helmet. Uh, it was like driving a sprint car. Uh, nobody could ever get that car down the track. They usually shut it off at, at no more than five or 600 feet. And I think the second pass I made it and I ran 218 miles an hour with it, the turbine car. It was because what was happening, it didn't have a flywheel or any gyro effect. So the tire, as the tires were growing, it wanted to drive around itself. That was driven strictly by, by thrust and then it did drive the tires, but it wasn't like you had a clutch and all of that in there. 
So as the tire grew, it wanted to drive around itself. So all you did was just like a sprint car or a midget, you just back, drove opposite to it. And it was fun. You could put it through the lights straight every time. Well, fairly straight every time. Uh, yeah. We did a shot there at dark one night with flashlights at the end of the track for me to aim at. And that's when they did the uh, uh, Newsweek came out and put a motor drive on the front. And we ran the car in the dark so that it showed the uh, fire coming out of the back and all of that. It was pretty spectacular. They did yeah. a, I can't remember what issue it was in even. And at that time, I really didn't care. I just got to drive the car. That's all I cared about. Yeah. Uh, but we did a lot of things there that were off the wall. And one of the things, uh, I go back to when funny cars first really started running and running fast. Uh, Jim Deist, who built parachutes and fire safety equipment for the racers and stuff out of Burbank, uh, he got a call from uh, Ram Chargers. They, they wanted to put a parachute on their car because it was going so fast, but nobody knew, well, where should it be mounted on the trunk and how do you do this? So he built a parachute and he called me, what am I going to do? Well, I couldn't run the racetrack during the week, supposedly, but there was a bridge at the end. The track went right under the bridge. So several times we'd go out there to test different things and we'd just drive under the bridge. San Fernando PD knew that we were doing it, but... They could drive by and say, uh, we tested it, we checked it out, and there was nobody there, so it's okay. Uh, it was hoodlums or vandalums or whatever. Well, Jim didn't have any clue where to mount the parachute, nor did he know how to pull the ripcord and all of that, so I actually rode in the trunk. And he made a hard run and knocked, and I pulled the chute, nothing happened. So he changed the location of the parachute, and the next now, time— Now, when you say nothing happened— it The deployed, parachute didn't open. It, it deployed, but it wouldn't catch it wouldn't air. Open. It wouldn't—yeah, it just popped out, but it, wouldn't, it didn't get enough air to open. Yeah. So the, he moved it up a little bit, and he said, okay, let's do it again. So we did it, and he knocked. Now, I don't have anything to strap me in. Mm. So I wound up basically holding onto the roll bar as soon as the parachute hit because I went— what, six feet very quickly and landed on it. But those were the huh. things that we did out there. Uh, when when Tommy Ivo built the, the four-motored car, we let him come out uh, and on a couple of Saturdays and even, I think, during the week a couple of times. And again, make a run, go under the bridge for 10 or 15 minutes till the cops came by, and then we'd go back and make another run so he could get dialed in on it because he didn't want anybody to see it. Now, I'm going to tell a funny story on Ivo at this time because, and he and I go back and we go through this about every time I see him. But we had a deal. We, we averaged probably five to 6,000 spectators on an average Sunday. So we offered him 50 cents a head or $3,000 to come the first grand opening of, the, or, you know, the premiere of the four-motored car. Since we'd been, that was part of the deal. We'd let him run there on Saturdays and during the week to get it tested, but he had to run it there the first time. And, you know, he calculated real quick, well, if they got 5,000 people here on an average Sunday at 50 cents a head, I'm going to take the 3,000. And we had 15,000 people that day that mm. paid. And I've never let him forget it. Every time I see him, it's like half of 15,000. But, you know, 
that was part of the fun of being there. And, and you know, Moravis is sitting over here. But they came out to San Fernando to run their cars, to test the cars. But it was part of their fun. It wasn't to make a living. It was just basically to have fun. Yeah, this is what's really coming across for me on this. The informal, the, number one, the informality of guys just coming up to you and going, I don't know what's wrong with it. Will you make a pass in it? And so you're jumping in all these different cars, unfamiliar cars, and just giving it a go. Well, and then you report back. And When you're that young, you're really pretty stupid. But, but, you, <laughs> but you, have, you think you're having fun, so you do it. Well, and you uh, were. You know, uh, there's a serious side to running the racetrack that was really difficult. Uh, we had three fatalities at the track. One of them was so bad that I literally had a shovel and buried part of the man because uh, he, he was destroyed that bad. Uh, so that was one of the parts of running the racetrack that uh, I really I paid a price for it for a while. Because you 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 have to think about this. You stand there, you slap a guy on the top of the head, a helmet, and you say, have a good race. And 20 to 30 seconds later, they're dead. Or they're seriously injured. And that's part of it. And C.J. Hart and I talked about this several times because Long Beach and Santa Ana had its fatalities too. And... That was one of the hardest things uh, about running the racetrack uh, was there was always that chance, and that's why you wanted everybody to live by the rules, the safety rules that was most important. I ran the old uh, Palmdale track for a couple of months when they were having trouble out there. Uh, the wind would blow out there, on, and it was just they, they would close the track down. Well, it was very simple. You move the clocks to eighth mile and run it an eighth of a mile with a crosswind. Most of the cars weren't getting fast enough to get in trouble. So all of a sudden they had an income. As soon as I got that up and running, I left and went back. And, you know, still I still was running San Fernando. So I didn't want to be at Palmdale, but I was doing that to help them out. Mm -hmm. uh, when Steve Evans was, built, was running uh, Long Beach, the racetrack, he put in a motocross course. Now, I'm his competitor out here in the valley, but I was also had been doing construction for years. He needed a, a timing shack for his motocross course, or the city wouldn't let him run the motocross. So I went down there at night after I left Peterson and built his uh, motocross timing tower up on the bleachers so that he could get his track going. That was not for any other reason than... He's a friend. He needs help. So let's help him get his thing going. And if it's a competitor, big deal. Well, and th this is what it sounds like to me, uh, as far as San Fernando is concerned, it sounds like you were all kind of a family. It you, was. You probably, it was probably rare, is it safe to say maybe, that it was probably rare that someone would show up, especially with a dragster, that you didn't know? If I didn't know them before they got there, I sure knew them before they left. Well, I'm sure of and, that. Well, but you know, it's like, uh, we had our little incidents. Uh, I threw a guy out because of a technicality on his car. Uh, 
And half a dozen of his buddies came surrounding me, and they were going to beat me up one Sunday afternoon. And I'm standing there thinking, okay, I'm going to get hurt, but I'm going to walk out of this one way or the other. And all of a sudden, I, I heard this voice in the background, Hibbler's in trouble. And I look up, and it was Jess Sturgeons who was driving a race. Uh, he had a top fuel car. But the hot pit area had emptied, and they were all down there. They're going to whip these guys and throw them out bodily. Hmm. Hmm. So it, that was a family. I mean, they came to protect me. Then yeah. I had to back them down to keep to protect my guys that were going to hurt me. Yeah. So, you know, that was the the thing that was made it so nice there and, and made it such a uh, total experience. Yeah. It really does sound like it was a community. I still get calls from people, and, and you'll love this, because how many thousand white 57 Chevys were built? And I'll run into people, or they'll call me, Hibbler, do you remember me? I had a white 57 Chevy that I raced at San Fernando. Well, gee whiz, you and 2,000 other guys had white 57 Chevys. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the friendships that were built there have lasted over the years as well. I was going to say, you must have so many friends that that, uh, are still your friends. They are. And and the same thing happened when I was publisher of the magazines. The same thing happened. I still talk to people that I built homes for years ago. It's... Mm. uh, to me, I've been blessed with not just having acquaintances, but having really friends. Uh, Bob Stemple, who was uh, chairman of uh, GM, chairman of the board, I get a call one night at home. Now, I'll set the stage for this. We were at Indianapolis for the Indy 500, and his wife loved my T-shirt, Hot Rod Magazine T-shirt. So I get back to California. I knew her size. I shipped her a Hot Rod T-shirt. Next thing I know, I get a call from Bob Stemple, and he says, Hibbler, I hate you. And I said, what's wrong now? He says, every night I go to bed. Pat was his wife's name. He says, Pat climbs in bed with nothing but a Hot Rod Magazine T-shirt, so the first thing I think about when I see her getting in bed is you. (laughs) Well, I won't tell you what the rest of that conversation went down, but it went down X-rated, how's that? Uh-huh. But those were the kind of friendships that were built over the years when, when uh, Herb Fischel was the head of all General Mo- all GM racing for years. He and I still talk on a regular basis just because it was a friendship that developed. You had Al Kirschenbaum in here. He worked at Hot Rod at Carcraft when I was there as the publisher. Those people have all stayed friends. And I don't care their politics or their... Uh, sexual persuasion or anything else about them personally, either we were friends or we weren't. Hot Rod Magazine also opened doors. And I had made a lot of friends in the uh, Overtrack world, world too, but because of being at Hot Rod, I got to be good friends with Petty, Richard Petty. I got to drive his car at Daytona for some testing. I drove um, a couple of cars. I drove Granitelli's car at Indy for some just testing fun. But I say that and I mention that because these are experiences, again, that because of the magazine, I got to know these people and became friends. And the next thing I know, it's like, well, why don't you come out and try this out and see if you like it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was that was part of the whole uh, era at that time that happened 
But it's also what made it so much fun and exciting and why it was so easy to get caught up. I used to fly three to 400,000 miles a year, uh, just going out, talking to people, going to meet with new manufacturers or new guys that had a new idea or going in to sit down with the head of a company. Uh, we went to, and, and not just car companies. I, I can't remember Craig's last name, but his family owned Fabergé. I sat down with him one time to lay out a program of advertising for young people, young men, for, for Fabergé. Now, I didn't know that much about Fabergé, but I sure knew what my audience wanted and how they wanted to smell. So I think I helped him. Well, that friendship lasted for years. And unfortunately, a lot of the guys had nicknames that I went by. We, we went by our nicknames, but we never talked that much about what their real names were. So a lot of times uh, I, I ran into one of the Beach Boys not, uh, last two years ago. And we were trying to remember what, his, what we had nicknamed him when he hmm. was coming out with his race car. <clears throat> so those were the things that we still remembered each other and all of that. I couldn't remember what we called him. Hmm. Did he call you hand grenade? No, that was before my hand grenade days. <laughs> that, was, that was before I had uh, become officially hand grenade. Do you want to tell the story of how that came up? Well, there's, there's two basic stories there, and, and probably both of them are a little true. The first story is, and this happened when I was in construction and also when I first started running the racetrack. I had a very short fuse. I knew how much time I had and I knew what safety factors had to be built into the car and stuff. If you did it, fine. If you didn't, out. And to the point of even Mickey Thompson and I were friends. He came out with the city, the Panorama City car, which was sponsored by the owners of San Fernando racetrack, but he had a five gallon jug of water tied to the front axle and that wasn't legal. And I threw him out and he was, Mickey, when I leave here, I'm calling your boss and you're fired. Well, my boss said, Mickey, if you didn't pass inspection, too bad. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's where the hand grenade started, but somebody said, you know, you sure got a short fuse, and the next thing I know, that was it. I'm curious to know something. Was there a time in your life when you really wanted to try to compete just full-time as a dragster driver, as a racer? Yes and no. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's another one that Ivo has a manage. He gets even with me over his four-motored car because the first year he went on tour, he came back. In the second year before he went on tour, he tried his best to get me to build a car. And I had my construction company going. I was a general contractor. He said, hang that thing up. There's no way I could see you could make a living as a professional at that time. So I turned him down and I never did it. And, you know, he reminds me ever so often about his lifestyle versus my lifestyle. So, you know, he gets even. Uh, and he always gets even, I can tell you that. I love, <laughs> love him dearly, but he don't let much go by. Uh -huh. but, but, yeah, there was a time when I thought seriously what it would be like to go out and 
do this full time. I had a wife and two children, my construction company. I guess I grew up that, you know, you've got a responsibility whether you like it or not. You've got to take care of it. So I did. Mm-hmm. That was, it was cast in stire. Yeah. No. This is a, a little bit of a random question, but I have to pick up on this because you mentioned it real quick and kept on going. You said something about a midget race car. And uh, what's the story well, on yeah, that? A friend of mine at the time, Bob Mercer, uh, we we ran around together and he came by the house one night and he says, hey, I got a chance to buy a midget. Now, I, without being flipped, to me, a midget was a little t- tiny person. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I was 17 years old. And I said, what would we do with a midget? Well, for 300 bucks, it was a race car. Now, $300 at that time was a lot of money, but $300 for a race car, even then, you didn't get much. Uh, it was a little flatbed uh, V8, uh, you know, a V860 flathead in it. And I drove, and I will have to admit, I was not a competitive driver. I had no clue what I was doing, but I learned a lot about what not to do in that little car. Uh, But then because of the drag racing thing, the way it was catching on, and it was easy, convenient, cheap, uh, I moved over out of the midget racing and got into that. And I've driven sprint cars. I've driven oval track several times, uh, a lot of road race courses and stuff, and enjoyed every minute of it. But... There's still nothing, in my mind, there's nothing like a sitting in a top fuel car. And I will have to say I'm still old-fashioned enough that the motor belongs in front of you. Mm-hmm. It may not be as safe. It may be, have a lot of drawbacks, but you can see your flame pattern. You can, you can drive by your smoke. There's a lot of things you can do. Bob Moravis knows driving a front-motored car. Uh, was just you had more you were more of a driver than than just hanging on for dear life like some of them do today mm-hmm. but uh, there's still I don't care I and, and I've like I said I've run the dry lakes I've run them all and there's still nothing that beats sitting in that top fuel car just letting it thump it just there's no there's no way you can do that without getting uh a little, uh, you know, a little bit of your head going, hey, this is fun. Oh, yeah, I bet. I bet. Well, it sounds like the whole ride has been a, whole, a lot of fun for you. I've been lucky enough. I'm in, uh, I'm, uh, I was inducted into the Specialty Equipment Manufacturers Association Hall of Fame several years ago. I'm in the, uh, the International Drag Racing Hall of Fame uh, and uh, I helped. There's a uh, Northwestern University out of Lima, Ohio. When I first met the owners of that, they had 200 students. And typical a day we sat there, I laid out what I thought they could do to bring uh, young people in for an education at their college. And on a napkin at lunch uh the today they've the last year they graduated five thousand 
uh, students that are all trained to in in mechanics. Mm -hmm. They can they have a little uh, dirt track, a rock climb track. They do their own uh, midget or actually an oval track. They do their own sound studio and everything. They teach the young people how to work on their cars, how to build the cars, but they also make them go and learn bookkeeping so that if they're making money, they can handle their money. And I mention them because that's one of the proudest things is I'm in, I guess I'm the first guy inducted into their Hall of Fame mm. uh, because they went from 200 students to over 5,000. And it was based on a, just a real simple plan on how to reach uh, young people and get them interested. And that goes back to what I said earlier about the stories we did with the Navy and the, and the Air Force and places like that. Get an education, because if you don't have the education, you can't cut it. Which is interest, interesting to hear you say, because you just ran off to California at 16. and I graduated from high school, and the rest of it came from just being in the right place at the right time. I say that. It was a lot of hard work, and, all, oh, uh, and, yeah. and a lot went into it. But I still was given so many opportunities that... Uh, it was like, well, here, dummy, either do it or you're stupid. And sometimes I got smarter than other times. Again, a lot of the racers helped a lot, too, because, you know, I, very rarely did I ever get a, a racer come down on me hard enough. If I ran an idea by him, and, and I'm talking about some of your top racers, some of your guys that have, you know, names that have, they're, they're in history books. And those guys just absolutely, hey, if you've got an opportunity to do this, go do it. Try it. See if you like it. If you don't like it, you can walk away from it. So I have to say that those people helped me a lot, too. Mm. And, and Robert E. Peterson, Bob Peterson was uh, fantastic because when I went to work for him uh, as an ad salesman, it was my first job, and I had no clue what an ad, how it ran, what it was for, or anything else. And he took pity on me and told me what to do and then said, now either go do it or pack your bags and go back to pounding nails. Mm. And I stayed there, like I said, 30 years. Wow. So wow. Uh, there was a lot of really good people in my life that gave me a lot of good advice. We want to thank you for being here. This has really been great. Thank you for the opportunity. I enjoy and And above all, I don't care who's watching this. Uh, parents or teachers or whoever, kids, get an education. Because if you don't get an education, uh, today uh, you have to have a college education to probably be equivalent to what I had as a high school. Uh, but either way, don't, don't quit learning. Never quit learning. Well, never stop learning. Words to live by. We will take that. Okay. And thank you again. We appreciate it. Well, all right, there you have it. Another great episode of the Rodcast brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. Just absolutely fantastic. Harry Hibbler, we cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. That just was a, a really special one. And, and I, I love the message. I love the message going out. It's just, uh, it's perfect. Special thanks 
as always, to our announcer, Larry Babb, and all the staff here at Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California. Our PR person is Angela Helton with social media management coming from Crystal Hayes. Technical assistance from Eric Curtis and Katie Sloan. And as always, all broadcast music is written and performed by me. Special thanks to our archivist and historian, Jim Miller, who's always doing the heavy lifting and keeping us honest. The American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Steve and Carol Mamishian for the sole purpose of documenting and preserving the history of hot rodding. Without their generosity and passion for this work, none of this would be possible. So, as always, if you'd like to learn more about the Foundation, please hop on over to our website, www.ahrf.com. You can support us there by checking out our merchandise or, better yet, sign up as a supporting member of the American Hot Rod Foundation. The package, if I do say so myself, is fantastic. You get a lot of goodies, and you also gain a really nice amount of very special access to different membership areas on the, uh, or I should say members-only areas on the website. Totally worth it. If you enjoyed this broadcast with Harry Hibbler, you will be able to go over to the membership area and actually watch it. Watch the filming of it. Watch Harry, you know, kind of speak and articulate and talk with his hands a little bit. And and you can really kind of feel a lot more excitement that way. So, yeah, please consider doing that. Uh, joining up as a supporting member of the American Hot Rod Foundation. We, we thank you in advance. So, you can also follow us across all our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, where we'll provide you with daily posts consisting of historical images pulled directly from the Foundation archives, as well as information on future episodes of the broadcast. So definitely check us out on social media. And once again, huge, huge thanks to the great Harry Hibbler. Just absolutely fantastic. I just so enjoyed talking with him and we thank him for his generosity for being such a great friend of the American Hot Rod Foundation and and truly for everything he's contributed to our great American pastime throughout his entire life. I mean, nothing better than supplying the kids with a drag strip. So thanks for that, Harry. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. We hope you'll join us again next time right here for another episode of The Rodcast. Thanks for listening to another great episode of The Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.